Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current series, The Vow. Wedding vows are more than a declaration of love. They hold the keys to a strong, lasting marriage. Whether you hope to get married someday or you've already tied the knot, discover what the vow can mean for the future. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, good morning, Valleybrook. How are we all doing this morning? Good. You know, there's some public speakers who ask that question in the morning and then be like, oh, come on, let's do it one more time. I'm not going to do that because I know the answer to that question. It is a Sunday morning. Y'all are tired. So you just did all your singing. I'm just going to give that. I don't think you're going to need to do a callback with me at all. So if I haven't met you, my name is Brian Rooney. I have the honor of speaking with you this morning. I am the new director of discipleship here at Valleybrook Community Church. I started this past January, and it has been an honor to be able to serve with you, along with you, get to know you. Uh, Clark told me that he thought it was probably best if I do a little bit of a uh, further introduction of myself, just because most people know Jenna. And I'm connected to Jenna as I'm, you know, engaged to her. So most people know her. So they just, oh, okay. Thank you. I mean, hey, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm happy too. I'll clap too. Um, but he always tells me, make sure you say her name quickly after your own, because most people will know her and then they'll go, oh yeah, you're the guy. So, <laughs> so if you watch the video that's behind me, you'll know that we're in a series on marriage called The Vow. And if you just paid attention to what I said a second ago, uh, you'll pick up that I'm not married. <laughs> so this will be a little bit fun of a morning. So, it, you know, just let me know if you're married and at the end you go, nah, you got that wrong. Come and talk to me. I want to know. Um, so, <laughs> well, so to catch you up on those who haven't been here, this series called The Vow is talking about the particular vows that are made in biblical marriages. Now, biblical marriages look a little different than maybe some other marriages that you see out in the community, out in the world today. And that doesn't mean that they're wrong in what they do. It just means that their marriages and a biblical marriage is just on a different kind of track towards a different end journey. So there are some different things within a biblical marriage, different vows, different activities, different kind of values that just shape the direction of that marriage as the way that we want to try to follow the way that God has lined up what he thinks a relationship look like or should look like over time. So to give you a recap on some of the things that we've talked about, so Clark spoke a few weeks ago on the first aspect of marriage he called the vow of priority. And in the vow of priority, he talked about the verse where it says, a man and a woman shall leave their mother and father, and then cleave to one another, showing that they are the priority above everything else, that your spouse and God are the priority over every other relationship that you have. And then he took on the next vow, which is the vow of pursuit, where he gave us a story, an example of a man who worked for seven years in pursuit of his spouse. And this is a story that I definitely did not have in mind after getting engaged to Jenna in less than a year. And so I probably should have gone back, maybe heard that before. Um, and then last week, we had the honor of hearing Ed Carroll speak on the vow of, um, sorry, the vow of partnership, where he spoke about his journey and what he's learned in his long partnership with his wife, Lorley. 
And so today we're speaking on the last aspect of what we think are major biblical vows, and this is the vow of purity. So correct me if I'm wrong, for those of you who are married, you probably haven't heard the word purity referring to your relationship since maybe back when you were dating, right? You know, I, can, I think I can speak for all the single and not married people when, when I say we hear that all the time, right? This is something that unmarried people hear frequently. That's kind of our thing is the purity. Make sure you're staying pure. Make sure you're watching your purity or whatever version of that you've heard. And so when it comes to marriage, it's like, what does this look like for marriage? I mean, aren't the people who are married, like, isn't purity done? Didn't you guys run the purity race and win? Isn't it all done for you guys? Now you're in the fun part, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, purity is such a weird thing in our culture because, you know, you hear about it so quickly and so heavily in this one section of life, and then it just fades away and it's gone. You don't really hear about it too much more. And I'll give you an example. When I was, before I got engaged to Jenna, I did an absurd amount of research into diamond purity when I was looking to try to buy her our engagement ring, right? So I went, I watched YouTube videos, I read books, I went to multiple different shops just looking and saying, what do I need to know on all this purity stuff? I don't really know anything about rocks and diamonds. I mean, I threw a couple at people when I was kids, but I didn't know anything more about like the minerals themselves. And then I learned that there are like, there's this huge grading system when it comes to diamond purity. And it's ridiculous. It has all these different layers. There's like three different graphs and they literally give you like a letter grading for your purity. And honestly, I'm so glad we don't get that in life. I, you know, unless, I mean, I have one marriage counseling course left to do, one marriage counseling, like, kind of meeting, so I don't know, maybe they do, maybe you do, maybe I just haven't gotten there yet. If I have, please warn me, um, but, um, you know, it's just such a weird thing with, like, purity ratings and things like that, but yet, right when I finally bought the ring, all that knowledge just flew away. I don't remember a thing outside of all of the, I remember the look of the graph, but I don't remember anything about the actual purity aspect of diamonds anymore, and happily so, because it was just a lot. But let me ask you this. In our culture today, with marriages dying in a rate of one in two, every, you know, every, you know, 50% of marriages ending at some point are ending up in divorce, do you think that that may be because we have forgotten what it looks like to be pure within our marriages, rather than just pure before? You know, for those of you who are, who are not married yet, maybe, you know, kind of lean in a little bit here because this might be helpful for the future. And those of you who aren't married or were married at some point, maybe look back, think back, or look at other marriages that you've interacted with with your family members. What does purity look like within the relationship versus just before? Because as I'm doing a lot of reading in, in the scriptures, as I'm trying to understand what this means, you know, purity in the Bible you know, I feel like there was a long time when everyone just kind of focused on it just means not having sexual relationships during a very small period of time. But if it's within marriage, it must be different than that. And so purity is not just about refraining from sexual relations. It's about being who and what you are without the presence of other things that make you what you're not. So kind of like a diamond, no dents, no cracks, no other minerals in it. It's purely what it is without anything else that makes it something else. And so in this context, it's about keeping marriage 
purely what marriage is supposed to be without the presence of anything else within it that's taking it away from what it's meant to be designed for. So in this context, you know, marriage, and just, you know, I'll give a definition, just, you know, kind of like generally, you know, marriage is the sacred tradition of being able to be fully known and intimate with one another. It's a reenactment of Adam and Eve in the garden, living unashamedly naked physically, but also relationally with one another and in relationship with God. And so this vow of purity, at least for how we're going to describe and define it for this morning, is the vow of purity is the vow to remove what is keeping you from being fully known in your relationship. We know this because in the Hebrew language, when you go back to the Bible and you read the early account in Genesis and the Old Testament, when you look at the Hebrew word, when it talks about Adam laying with his wife, the actual word they use in the Hebrew says, it says this in Genesis 4, it says, and Adam knew his wife and they conceived. And that may be a little confusing, but since, you know, in Hebrew, when you're trying to translate you know, an old ancient language into one today, you need to have a couple different kind of words to understand the full grasp of what that means in our culture and our language. Kind of like how in English, if we were trying to tell someone who's not you know, a native English speaker, if we were supposed to try to translate a sentence like, I don't know, world's best pizza, we'd have to add slash world's best pizza slash J&G's in East Granby to help them kind of, you know, give them a little bit more context of what we're trying to say, right? It can take a couple different words to help kind of narrow it down. So in this word, when it says Adam knew his wife, the word laying with or being with in that intimate place, they knew as fully knowing one another in a way that nobody else did. Purely knowing one another in a very beautiful way. So again, the vow of purity is to remove from your relationships with God and with your spouse. Because Clark talked a lot about how God is just as much a member of our marriage and our relationships as our spouse is because he's in our life before, during, and after any kind of relationships we have. And so he is just as much within this. And so it's removing what is keeping you from being known by your spouse and keep and remove what is stopping you from being known from God. And so we kind of split this up into a few different kind of commitments, you know, within that vow. And, you know, commitments can often in our culture today seem a little restrictive because you're saying I'm committing to do this and not this. And so sometimes they limit you. But in reality, commitments provide room for growth, and it's a decision to say, I'm going to put this down in pursuit of a different goal. Again, why marriages in the church will look different than marriages in the rest of the world, because they're just towards a different end goal. That's why they look a little different. Right. So the first commitment within this, we think, is the commitment to marital exclusiveness. That's the first commitment within this vow. Now, let me be honest, I think... Of all the things that the church has made known to the rest of the world, I think making known that they think that marriage is just between the first two original people in the marriage, I think they've done a pretty good job at that. So I don't think this is new information. The church is very usually stating, hey, we think it should just be the two, right? If you started with the two, stick with the two. That should just be it, right? So it's not new information, but 
you know, when Jesus came down and did his first sermon on marriage, there were a bunch of people who, again, also knew that. So they were going, oh, Jesus is preaching on marriage. Great. We already know this. We already know what the church thinks. We already know what the, the Jews at the time think. So they're ready to like pat themselves on the back here and get a little bit of a, oh, cool. I've already done it all. And Jesus drops this bomb on them. This is in Matthew 5. It says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And the reason Jesus came up and dropped this bomb is because Jesus knew something that was so critically important to every aspect of life, and that is that sin starts in the heart. The heart in their culture was there, they understood the heart as being the center and the core of everything about who you are. And it's where our drives, our desires, our hopes, our dreams all come from. Again, in their culture, we know they're kind of connected, but it's the core and he knew that's where sin took its full effect and its main effect, and that's where it began. And he also tried to make the case that it's not just about doing right things, but it's about keeping a right heart. And he knew that there were so many people that are actually guilty of this command that you shall not commit adultery because in their heart they already desired to. They wanted it. I'll give this example. I explained this to someone the other day. They asked what I was talking about, and I gave them this. I thought it was a little silly. If a man wants to, you know, sleep with his neighbor's wife, but she doesn't want to sleep with him, that doesn't make him righteous just because she said no. And it's like, oh, look, I'm not committing adultery. She doesn't want to sleep with me. Great. Look, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's like Jesus knew that is, no, you want it in your heart. It's already happened. It's already taken its full effect. Because if she did want to, you would do it. That's where the full effect of the sin takes place, in the heart, in the dreams, in the desires of who we are here. And so when we talk about this commitment to marital exclusiveness, and then we think about this vow of purity of removing what is keeping us from being fully known, when we have this desire to move and be with someone else or introduce someone else into our heart, that's not helping us be fully known. It's helping our heart become more egotistic. And when I mean egotistic, it means more self-centered and more closed off. Because oftentimes in those kinds of relationships, whether it's watching pornography, whether it's a one-night stand, whether it's chronic unfaithfulness to a spouse, there's always this sense of hiding that takes place in it. There's this sense of this is something that no one else needs to know. And that's not being known. The first thing Adam and Eve did in the garden when they sinned and God walked through the garden is they hid from him. And that was the first example of what happens when sin enters our heart, is that we hide. And that separated us from God because we were no longer known and we no longer knew him because we hid. But this also happens with our spouse. And you know, the psalmist says this, he says, the wicked think, you know, God isn't watching us. He's closed his eyes. He won't even see what we do. And it's, again, just this picture of hiding. And that just doesn't sound like being known in that intimate place. It's adding something to marriage, this hidden side to marriage, and it's not allowing you to be fully seen. When you look at a diamond that's perfect and pure, you see through it. And this is why Jesus says, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Purity helps you see clearly without, the, you know, any, without all the other stuff that's in it. There is a Japanese theologian once who said, an egotistic heart 
cannot be pure because can that which imprisons a heart be called pure? When your heart is focused on just yourself, you imprison yourself because you're committing to things that you didn't commit to originally. You're committing to saying, this is just about me. It's not about being open and being known. I'm committing to hiding. And that imprisons a heart. So if you're currently living in this pattern, I just want to say, run from it. Speak to someone. Be known by someone, whether a pastor, a friend, a family member, a counselor, a therapist. We have resources that we have out in the hall called, you know, part of, you know, all these different mental health resources. If you are finding that you are entrapped, entangled in a pattern of an egotistic heart, run, seek help. There's a site that we, that we use every once in a while to help people through these kinds of patterns of life called Setting the Captives Free, and it is a wonderful resource because it truly is that. It is setting the captive hearts free and being back and returning to a place where they can be fully known. The next commitment we have is the commitment to marital intimacy. Once it's now just the two and we focused and we said, let's remove everything else that's keeping just the two, and now it's just us two, it's committing to the intimacy between the two. You know, I heard the other day that one of the, the problems, one of the biggest problems in our society is that we become too rooted in technology. And when we do that, we actually don't get to see the amount of work it takes to do the amazing things that we get to do. And the reason I bring this up now, like I want you guys to imagine, you guys, most of you have cell phones. And on your cell phone, there's calendars, there's calculators, there's games, there's loads and loads of music, which were edited over and over and over and over and over to be able to be on your phone. And you have everything else to be able to connect with everyone in the world instantly. When yet, if I was to crack open the screen and show you the inside, most of you would just go, huh, okay, I have no idea how that works. And neither would I. And so that's one of the things that oftentimes we miss because of our technology and the world that we're in is we don't get to see the amount of beauty and work that goes into creating something beautiful. I actually remember when I was a kid, I used to love the controllers that I had for my Nintendo 64, the ones that you could see through. So not only could I see the actual, like, all the stuff that was inside, but I could also see what was causing my James Bond character to just turn away when I wanted to get him straight. And I'm like, all right, there's something in there that I need to go figure out and see. But that only happens when I get to see it. Because other than that, you're just like, I don't know what's happening in here. I don't know what's going on, what makes it turn left or right or whatever. And so when we're committing to marital intimacy, intimacy comes in being seen, being transparent. Seeing what's going on underneath the screen, underneath the controller, underneath all the work, to see what's going underneath helps you to not only connect with one another, but also helps you to grow together. And so within this, there are three kind of steps to commit to marital intimacy. There's transparency, there's admittance, and then there's forgiveness. The wisest man in the Bible once stated, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So in transparency, it's opening up, it's resisting the urge to hide, to hide behind a screen, to hide behind a casing, to say, this is who I am, I'm open with you, and I'm open with what I'm doing and what I'm doing wrong. 
And that releases pride, which releases the hold on an egotistic heart, which we're trying to step away from. And if you're here and you know, well, I I don't want to admit my problems because I'm that way too. I don't like admitting my problem. One of the ways that I try to help remind myself that I need to do that is that there really isn't any room on the planet for any more perfect people. We only had one. Jesus was that person. There's really no more room for any more perfect. So I have to at least show one of my flaws at some point. The second is forgiveness. Jesus reminds us that forgiveness is both something we ought to desire for ourselves, for God and from others, but also something we need to practice with other people. Jesus says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others for their sins, you know, your Father will not forgive you, a.k.a. You can forget your own forgiveness if you try to keep it into like a therapeutic response between you and God just to feel good. That's not how forgiveness works because God is that other person in the relationship. So when you say, God, can you forgive me, but you won't forgive your spouse, he's going to go, no, absolutely not. Forgive them, work with them, and then come talk to me. You need to forgive everyone in there in order to be forgiven yourself. If you're not being open with your spouse or not being vulnerable with them, you're not being fully seen by them. And so when you want to be intimate, if you're questioning, where is that intimacy with my spouse? Ask yourself, am I hiding? The last one is admittance. And in admittance, actually, sorry, yeah, if we're in admittance, sorry, we did admittance. I got confused for a second. Last one is forgiveness. Let me ask you this. If you are in a relationship and you can see your spouse or someone close to you, if you see them and they're not opening and not admitting to you or asking for forgiveness, ask yourself, am I providing an environment that's safe for this person to come and know me? Because it's not just the work that we need to do ourselves just for our own edification. It's are we creating an environment where we can be told? when we can be, are we giving our spouse the, the opportunity to be open with us? The last thing, sorry when I meant the last one, this is, the last one is we're committing to marital work. And honestly, you could fill up a year's worth of sermons on marital work. I've done a lot of research on marriage in preparation for this because I wanted to at least see what I'm talking about. And I was like, there is no way you can get all of this in one or two sermons. So I tried to boil it down to just one point here. When it comes to any marital work that you do within your relationships, it is guided by your expectations. All the work, all the stuff that you could fill a million sermons with are led by your expectations. So church, make sure your expectations are godly. If they're not godly, they're not going to work for a biblical marriage. And oftentimes, if our expectations are not godly, they're really not based in anything that's true. Oftentimes in marriage or in any kind of relationships, it's usually this expectation or demand that we have for one another for something they ought to be doing, should be doing, or we think that we, that we need. And then when they don't, we end up having this fallout. When they, when they can't hit our expectations, we either get angry with them, we either have this awfulizing experience where we go, this is terrible, this is awful, I can't believe that I have to live in a life like this without this demand that I've placed, or it ends up being with psychologists call frustration intolerance, or AKA, I can't stand it anymore. 
And so when you have this demand and then you have this huge fallout of not reaching that demand, we talk a lot about beliefs here in church. Let me just ask you, when you have that kind of belief system laid out in your marriage, how is that going to help you? Like, where is the benefit of reaching in this huge demand that will eventually fail and then will just end in one of these three kind of responses? Like, I don't really see the benefit in that. However, if we make our expectations God's expectations, if we look to him and see what, are, what do I, should I expect for a godly marriage, those ones actually follow suit. In our vow of purity, the vow to remove what is hindering our ability to be fully known from each other and from God, we have to commit to keeping our marriage the way that God intended it to be with the original people in it. We commit to intimacy with one another, being open, asking for forgiveness, forgiving one another, and admitting our own shortcomings. And then it's keeping our expectations purely godly. Because in this, we keep marriage what it's supposed to be. We keep it pure without anything else that's in there to make it something it's not. Again, you look at a diamond and it's pure and you see everything you when you remove everything that's in it and it's purely just almost see-through. You can see God in it. And you see God through a pure marriage. Now, if you're here and you've seen some success in your marriage, in keeping your marriage pure, please come and tell me because I can't even imagine the amount of good that comes from a pure, holy, pleasing marriage where you see God in it. I can't even imagine the amount of beauty that comes from that because purity is something that is very difficult to find these days. Because it takes a lot of work within a biblical marriage to do it, and it's very difficult to find it outside of this. I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come up. You know, this is the way that Jesus has called us to live. And so we here who are followers of Jesus strive to follow the example that he's laid out because we trust him and we know him. We believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so when he lays out a design for us, we trust that design and we trust that it is fulfilling because his hopes and desires for us is that we have a fully thriving and abundant, satisfying life. And including that in that is a satisfying marriage. So when we come here together, work with one another, be open with one another, Work with your spouse, be open and be transparent, be known by them. Again, remove in your marriages what is keeping you from being fully known and you will achieve intimacy in a way that virtually nobody else has been able to experience because this is what God has laid out for us. So if you're new here to Valleybrook, we're about what Jesus says. We're adamant about following Jesus with our life. And so if you're here and you haven't done that before, or you're thinking maybe this is something I can do, come follow him with us. And that's our invitation as a church today. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into a time of worship. Dear Lord, we want to know you. Lord, we want to know you intimately. And Lord, we are those of us who strive to follow you with our everyday life, 
we desire to be able to have our marriage reflect the relationship that we have with you, being known the way it was made to be in the beginning, in the first marriage that you had set up, where they were open and seen with one another, fully known without anything hindering it, and no desire to hide from you or from our partner. So Lord, we pray that as we are turning towards purity, when we think about purity within marriage, that you help us to be known. That you show us an example of what it means to be known by helping us to know you so that we can then do that with our spouse and follow you. We thank you, Lord, for your guidance, for your wisdom. And we pray that you be with us, whether we're married or not married, that you be with us, stand beside us, and know us each and every day. In your name we pray, amen.